Well, this morning we are going to continue in our summer teaching series that's entitled Stories of God. This is where we're taking uh, time each week over the summer to move through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation over the course of the summer. And there's really two ways we get to do this. Um, Each week there's a Scripture passage that we're preaching on on Sundays, and that Scripture passage is part of the shorter Scripture reading for the coming week. We hope that many of you have been reading uh, the scripture passage. If you've not been, it's never too late to start. Uh, You can begin this week, and if you're not certain of how that works, on our homepage on our website, there is a banner. It looks uh, shockingly like that banner that's up on the screens right now, entitled Stories of God. You can just click on it, and when you click on it, it'll take you to a link that has the weekly readings and uh, a podcast on really how we engage Scripture and how we think about Scripture when we read it. And so I encourage you to do that and to, to check it out. Uh, the Scripture reading today is from the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, and uh, the shorter reading for this coming week are the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which really work together. Um, there are two short books. And, um, and I need to set a little bit of context for you before we get into the text from the book of Ezra, because the context of where and how it was written is really, really important to understanding what we're going to be reading, okay? Over the last two weeks, we've been talking about what it was like for the people of Israel when they entered into the promised land, that they walked into the promised land that God had for them, and immediately what they started doing is looking at the other tribes and looking at the other nations who were neighboring them, and they were going... Maybe they've got something figured out that we don't have. We want to look more like them. Maybe their spirituality is more alive than ours. Let's let's just keep looking. Let's keep checking it out. Let's keep experimenting. Let's keep doing this. And one of the things that they started wanting was to start having their nation to uh, look more like the leadership of their neighbors. So they didn't just want God in charge because, you know, what what is that? Moses goes into this tent and the, the cloud descends and he walks out saying what we're supposed to do. Like, could we have something that's not quite as you know, amorphous in this, like let's have something solid and there's like a strategic plan behind it and thinking and a committee studied it and we're ready to go. And so they said, you know, we want to look where there's like a a human ruler that tells us what to do. And so we read two weeks ago about the book of Judges, that God starts sending judges uh, to the people who are not to judge like guilty or innocent, but these judges were to lead the people at different times back to God. And that worked for a little while, but then the people decided that wasn't enough, and they wanted a king or a queen. They wanted a monarchy like other nations had. And so they had King Saul was anointed, the first king over Israel, who was followed by the great King David. And as we read in the scriptures, as Jill talked about last week, David was the first of the kings of Israel to unite all 12 tribes. All 12 of the original tribes were united under David. And that united kingdom lasted for David and through the reign of David's son, Solomon. But as soon as it got to David's grandchildren, they, people in the leadership was openly fighting. Because when you want the leadership structure of other people, you also get the baggage that comes with it, right? And so they were fighting about policies, and they were fighting about power, and they were fighting about politics. And what happened was, is in that fighting under David's grandchildren, the nation of Israel actually split into two. There were two nations that lasted for a couple of hundred years, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And what they, if you read this past week, what they actually split over were taxes. 
what's the tax rate that we should have? So if you're frustrated by that conversation in America, just know we didn't invent that, right? It's like they fought because 10 of the 12 tribes felt that Solomon's heir, his son, had too high of, of a tax system, and they wanted lower taxes, and when they didn't get it, they found one of Solomon's other sons that would give them the tax breaks they wanted, and so they just united a new kingdom, right? So there's the kingdom of Israel, and there's the kingdom of Judah, and that lasts for a couple of hundred years until they are conquered by an outside nation, by the nation of Babylon. Now, this is critically important because in the Old Testament, there's two great crises that the people of God face. The first is when they are enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. But this is the second one. Because the people believe, just like you and I often believe, is that if God's with us, then, then nothing bad should ever happen. And when they are conquered by the empire of Babylon, it sends them into this sort of crisis of like, how if God loves us so much, how could this happen? If God is so good, how is this possible that it would work out that way? And what Babylon did when they came in, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, is they ransacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple of God that was there, they destroyed uh, the social structure of both Israel and Judah, and they took kind of the leaders of Israel and Judah under force back to Babylon. Okay? So they took like the leading artists and the leading thinkers and the leading uh, religious leaders and the leading scholars. They took them by force back to Babylon and forced them to work for the Babylonian king. They wanted the best and brightest from who they had conquered to come back and to lead. And so Israel and Judah were robbed of their temple, of their city, um, of their nation, and then of their leaders. And it was that way for 50 years. Just everything is desolate. After 50 years, and again, this is, this is not just information, it's so important to understand what we're about to read, the Babylonians were conquered by another empire, the Persians, okay? And in 537 BC, about 537 years before Jesus was born, the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and one of the things they did is they allowed all the captive Jewish leaders to go back to Israel. So after 50 years in exile, these leaders returned to the country that they had been forced to leave, or that their parents had been forced to leave, and the people had to figure out, how do we start building ourselves up again as God's people? What does it mean to be God's people when we feel like we've lost everything and we have to start from scratch? And so God sends the people two leaders, the two books that we're going to be reading about this week, Ezra and Nehemiah. These are the two leaders that God sends to the people to bring them back to who are we at our core? Who are we at our core identity as God's people? Ezra was the chief priest at the time when the nation was being rebuilt, and Nehemiah was the governor. Now, I'm sure some of you have experienced this in your life. This week, as I was preparing for the sermon, I got a gut punch as a pastor because I was reading a commentary, and the commentator said, if you're a pastor and you're planning on preaching on Ezra and Nehemiah, you probably have ignored these books for much of the time. And I was like, that feels unfair. That, that hurts a little bit. And they're like, except during a building campaign. Because during a building campaign, we open up to Nehemiah and Nehemiah had to get the people to give and sacrifice for the building of the walls in Jerusalem. And so we always open it up when there's a building campaign to say, you guys need to give for the building that we need to do because it's God's will and you build the kingdom. And they said, outside of that, you probably never talked about it. Well, as, if you've been here at all, we just did a capital campaign and it went really, really well. And I was like, I didn't even talk about Nehemiah. We didn't talk about it the whole time. So that feels like an unfair accusation that because it worked well for us, we didn't talk about the building of the walls. 
But the first part still applied, which is if you haven't talked, you've, you've probably never talked about this except for a capital campaign. And what that means is, because I've not talked about it in a capital campaign, I have never, ever preached from the book of Ezra in my life or taught on either Ezra or Nehemiah. And that, that, that was convicting, right? Because this book, Ezra, which we're about to read a few verses of, has so much to say about our lives today. One last thing before we read the text. Ezra as the chief priest isn't even introduced into the book of Ezra until the beginning of the seventh chapter, which we're going to read. The first six chapters are the people returning from Babylon, returning from exile, trying to rebuild their nation. And they start by thinking institutionally, like a lot of Christians do today, right? What's the first thing they do when they gather back? Like, well, what do we need as God's people? We need a building. We've got to have a building. So they build the temple is the first thing they do, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But uh, when they build it, they, they're still kind of longing. There's a longing in them. Even with this beautiful building and temple after it's dedicated, there's still this thing that feels like it's missing. It still doesn't have the life that they want. And so God sends Ezra at the beginning of the seventh chapter to bring the people back to this is the core. At our core, and this is so important for us to remember today, at our core, as followers of Jesus here in Austin, Texas, in 2017, the church is not a building. It is not an institution. It is not a denomination. The church is none of those things. It's not that those are bad. Those things aren't bad, but they're not the core of who we are. The core of who we are is what God sends Ezra to remind the people of and maybe remind us sitting here today of at our core who we are as well as human beings and why we exist, okay? So that takes us to the scripture passage we're going to look at, Ezra chapter 7, starting in verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants also went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. They came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, the journey up from Babylon was begun. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the gracious hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that you would speak to us from your living word and mold and shape us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the years, one of the things that you have probably seen and been exposed to is the endless amount of writing and speaking on the topic of leadership. Leadership, there's entire industries that are created just about talking about leadership and what it is and the philosophies of leadership that exist, some of which is really, really good. Um, when we talk about leadership, every one of us is called to be a leader. Every one of us. It's not just for a few people. We are called to be leaders in our friendships, in our relationships, in our families, um, in our schools, and where we work or where we volunteer. All of us are called to exert influence on, on people around us. That's what leadership is. 
And of all the literature about leadership and all the stuff that's good, I think one of the things that we have to understand about good leadership is that good leadership has to reflect the core values of the leader. Any leadership has to be not about just telling people what to do, but it's the leader doing it and inviting others to come along and to do it with them. It's not just going, hey, here's the right thing, and in a charismatic way, teaching people what to do, but you have to do it. Take, for example, here in Texas, okay? A good example is what happened at the Alamo. I got to go on a fourth grade trip with my oldest daughter, chaperoning her field trip to the Alamo uh, a couple of years ago. I had seen this in the movies. Our tour guide described this, that there's this great moment in the Alamo where Colonel Travis realizes that no reinforcements are coming to help them. And they want to continue to um, hold off the Mexican army to give the army of, of General Sam Houston time to organize and get ready. So Colonel Travis calls all the, the fighters of the Alamo together in the courtyard and takes his saber and he draws a line in the sand in the courtyard. And he says, if you're going to leave, this is the moment you have to go. But if you want to stay, step across this line. And those of us who step across this line are going to stay till the bitter end. And in this dramatic scene, people make this amazing choice of sacrificing and being a part of something larger than themselves. They step across the line, right? And it's this great example of many things, including leadership. Because the first person to step across the line has to be Colonel Travis, right? It doesn't work as well if Colonel Travis gives this great impassioned speech and everyone steps across the line. He's like, good for you. I'll send a postcard, right? Like it doesn't work that way. Leadership is not about telling other people what to do. Leadership is about the, has to reflect the core values of the leader that the leader is going to do or the leaders are going to do. And they're inviting people to come with them. This is the leader that God has sent for this time and the people to his people, the, the, the prophet and the priest Ezra. And we see in these verses both core values for Ezra, what he's about, and therefore what it is about him that God appoints to be a leader, to form the people, right? Both about what's about him personally and how he's going to lead the people that we'll read about in the book of Ezra to get them back to their core. And we find Ezra's philosophy for living and therefore of leadership in verse 10 that we just read. It says that he's about three things. Three things that Ezra, it says, sets his heart. I love that. He sets his heart on doing. Number one, he sets his heart on studying the law of God. It says number two, then he sets his heart on doing the law. And then third, he sets his heart on teaching the ordinances of the law to others. Each of these three things, studying the law, doing it, and teaching it. And each of these three is important, but I think it's important the order that they come in, right? The first thing that Ezra did in his own life and the first thing he desired was to not be someone who was a leader who taught, but the first thing Ezra desired was to be a person who was formed. He wanted to be someone who studied the law and then analyzed his own life about what he was doing. Was he following and living out what he had just studied about? And so the first two of these three points, studying it, doing it, and then teaching it, were about Ezra's desire for his own formation. Does that make sense? It was about his leadership was built on his constant desire for his own formation. 
And at some level, that's the value that God wants the people to have. That at our core, we are a people who are constantly desiring for God to shape and form us. We constantly want to interact with God in worship, in Bible study, in prayer, so that God would shape and mold and form our lives. And that we would be people who study, who do, and only then start talking and teaching and telling other people what they should do. What's interesting is that when you look back on it, this is one of the first time, it may be the first time in the Bible, that there's the idea that the scriptures are something that God's people gather around. It's kind of a cool concept when you stop and think about it, right? Like, in church, you all probably are not stunned when on Sundays we read from the scripture passage, right? I mean, it's probably not that we came up here and said, we're going to read from the Bible, and everyone went, oh, oh I I didn't think you would do that. What, you know, what a creative idea. I never, I never saw that coming, right? It's like, no, this is what we do. We gather around the scriptures. And we know that that's biblical, right? We read in the gospels, for example, that's how Jesus taught. When he was in the temple, it says that he um, unrolled the scroll from Isaiah and he taught from the scroll. So even in the time of Jesus, there was this sense that God's people gathered around the word, studied the law, as, as Ezra writes here. But you gotta think about when did that start? Right, like in the beginning when we read in Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve when it's like, hey, should we eat from this fruit or not? Like lots of times when people are discerning something, we'll be like, you know, hey, you need to read the scriptures. What the, did the scriptures have anything to say? That wasn't an option for Adam and Eve, right? You couldn't look at them and be like, have you read your Bible? They're like, we don't know what you're talking about, right? Or take Abraham in the book of, of, of uh, Genesis, right? Is when Abraham's gonna, listening to God and I'm gonna follow God out into the wilderness, it's like he didn't have a Bible to guide his journey or what he should do. It didn't exist at the time. Moses didn't have much of what we would call the scriptures that he was reading going, oh, this looks like this is what we should do. So some point from the beginning of the scriptures to Jesus, it developed, does that make sense? It developed somewhere in the Old Testament of like, hey, we should gather around the scriptures here. Jesus did it. But where's that line? Like, where did it happen in the Old Testament? And many people think it's here with Ezra. That is, the people were, being, were rebuilding themselves after exile in Babylon. This was the first time they're like, we should gather around the, the law of God. That the law of God, the Torah, the early parts of what we know as the Old Testament, God speaks to us through this. It's not just that it's a rule book to memorize. It's not that. It's a living word where God's spirit speaks to us. So this great tradition we have, it probably started here, and Ezra wanted to form the people and his own life around that of one who studied God's word. Wouldn't it be amazing if people today, and even Christians today, put two-thirds of the energy into their own formation before they started telling everybody else what to do? Because our culture has reversed this completely. We live in a culture where people are fascinated with themselves. They are fascinated with their own opinions. It is my opinion and my right and my truth and my viewpoint of things and my ability to understand. And technology has given us the most amazing platform where all of us can play experts on anything, right? And so we just sort of can spout out all the stuff or forward articles or post things to uh, our social media pages and we can put our voice, our opinion, our truth out there, and we think everyone should listen. Now, I'm not an anti-technology or anti-social media person. Um, I, know the, I know there are many benefits of it. My wife is from a different country. 
One of the main ways she keeps up with people, family and friends in her home country in Wales is through social media. It's the way that my in-laws see pictures of their grandkids. And I mean, so there's a ton of wonders through it. But one of the things I have noticed in my life is in this culture where everybody is talking all the time, I feel myself like hardening, like getting a harder shell around me. I heard one person describe it recently as saying that it feels like people used to talk and listen to each other to grow. It feels like we now just listen in order to respond. Like I'm not really listening to you to consider what you're saying. I'm just getting ready to put my point of view back out. And so we just talk at each other. We see it in our politics right now. We see it in our culture right now. We see it in these great divisions. And, and I feel myself hardening. It's one of the reasons that, that since the election in November, I actually really don't go on social media anymore. And I didn't go on it leading even up to the election because I didn't feel like I was getting more informed. I feel like I was just developing better filters to not listen to people. Because I was going through and all these like, you need to know this and you need to know this and what about this opinion? And if you think anything different from me, then you're just wrong and you're playing, you're throwing hand grenades at each other. And I started just skipping over people, and I'm sure it was none of you, but like people in my feed where I'm like, I know what you think, I know what you think, I know what you think, I don't want to listen, I'm not going to read the link, I'm not going to look at the article, because I already know what you think. And all you're going to do is put out your position that's so right, and your truth, and your beliefs, and your opinions, and everything else that people need to listen to you. And so I just found myself just not listening. I took off on my phone. I used to have like a, um, a, a, an app where you would get breaking news and your phone would, would vibrate to it. I've taken that off. Like, and this is gonna date me, and this makes me feel old to say this, but do any of you remember when breaking news was like, really significant? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, like growing up, when it would come up and they were like, there's breaking news, like everyone would stop and turn to see what, because it happened like twice a year. Now it's like nine times a day. Things are coming in, and you're looking at most of it going, are you kidding me? This is the banner that's flashing on my phone, but it creates this sense of anxiety and this sense of like, well, where, you know, where's everything going? And I just felt myself hardening up, and I haven't missed it. I have not missed it at all. Now, the danger with that is that we just kind of get into our own bubbles, and we don't talk or engage anymore. So I've had to be really conscientious about going and finding news, going and finding commentators, not just people who agree with me, but people that are going to push me and push my viewpoints, people who think well and write well and, and, and cause you to kind of ponder. Um, but the idea that the increased availability of information will make us more sponges, to me in my life is not true. I find myself hardening because we live in a culture where everyone's talking all the time. That's not Ezra. It's not who he was about. His first thing was, I don't desire to teach and tell and post things on Facebook so that you know my enlightened point of view. My first thing is I want to study God's law. My second thing after as I'm studying is that I want to be formed by it. I want to do it. I want to analyze whether I'm living it out or not. And after that, then I move forward in teaching it and encouraging others to follow it as well. This is how greatness happens, guys, is this sense of what Ezra has, this desire to constantly be formed rather than seeing yourself as a finished product who has all the answers. This happens in different areas of life. As many of you know, I'm a, I'm a big basketball fan. Um, I love basketball, and in my opinion, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player that we have ever seen. I know... <laughs> 
It's like the one time I've ever gotten applause, and uh, it's Michael Jordan. I'm going to choose to develop a hard shell and just not believe that that's the, the thing that I deserve applause for, nothing else. So Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player ever. There are other opinions on that, right? You are entitled to those opinions. You're wrong, but you're entitled to the opinion that maybe somebody else is a greater basketball player than Michael Jordan. One of the things about Michael Jordan, one of my favorite stories about him was when he was in college and he was coached by the Hall of Fame coach Dean Smith at the University of North Carolina. Dean Smith was known as a hard-nosed coach. And there was an interview near the end of Dean Smith's life where he was asked about Michael Jordan. And they said, you know, what made him so great? You know, what made him so great was his athletic ability. And Dean Smith said, no. He said, we had people that could jump just as high as him. There are people in the NBA that can jump taller than Michael Jordan. It's not about just his athletic ability. He said, what made him great was his competitiveness and his coachability. He was never saw himself as a finished product. He constantly was looking for coaching. He was constantly looking to get better. He was constantly looking to improve. And that trait is so rare and it's what made him great. This is true in my own life. People who have been mentors to me, people who have been spiritual mentors to me in the faith, one of the things they've always had in common is none of them ever saw themselves as an expert. None of them ever saw themselves as like when I went to them and said, hey, could I meet with you or could I pray with you regularly or could you, would you be willing to mentor me? None of them had the reaction of going, of course you came to me, right? That's not the reaction they had is that these weren't people who saw themselves, I've got the degree, so of course that I know what this means. They were people who were themselves like Ezra, they were hungry to keep growing, they wanted to keep growing, and that was the attraction to get near to them because, because they just had this insatiable hunger for the stuff of God. Does that describe you? Does it describe me? Does it describe us? Because this is the stuff of Ezra, this is what his leadership is all based on. It's the desire for God first and foremost to speak to us, to shape us. In our tradition, we say that the scripture, the word of God, is the unique and authoritative word. There's nothing else like it. And the, the, the most common human desire is to take the scriptures and go, I'll believe that and I won't believe that and that feels outdated and I'm not going to look at this. And that, that is not the way we approach this. We don't approach scripture by saying, let me just bend it to whatever my opinions are. But the whole notion of scripture is that we are people who are called to wrestle with scripture, to bend our lives around what is God's design for creation. Not because it's the rule, but because it's because the way the creator speaks to us about how we come alive. That's one of the reasons that we seek here at Covenant, for example, to give more of our budget as we've done over recent years, more and more away, more and more to missions, more and more away in the city, more and more away in the world. It's not because we're politically correct. It's not because we're trying to be so nice here in the city. It's because the word of God says to us that it is in reaching out to the poor and the forgotten and the marginalized and the oppressed that we find Jesus. He says, when you welcome in and serve and love the least of my brothers, there, there you experience me. You welcome me in then as well. It's why it is that we talk about the church as a place of these four rhythms of, of scripture and intimate fellowship and prayer and extravagant generosity as we see in the book of Acts. It's not that we just had this great idea in a committee meeting that these are the four things we should be about. We went to the scriptures and saw that this is the description of church and said, let's bend the behaviors of our community to look more like this because this is where we come alive. 
It's where we see, for example, that one of the great things that I get to do as a pastor is to officiate at weddings. It's one of the great joys. And we've had a number of our newer members, uh, of our younger members getting married uh, in the last couple of months that I've gotten to officiate weddings. And it's a great joy. Whenever I meet with a couple as they're preparing for marriage, the first meeting, we don't sit there and read blogs or talk about uh, you know, family of origin or talk about Tim Keller's book on marriage. All of that stuff can be good. The first thing we do is read the scriptures. What is God's design for marriage? And we see that God's design for marriage is a place where you don't just have a husband and wife who are really in love with each other, but it's, it's a husband and wife who are equally seeking to serve each other as equal partners. And that that's God's design for what marriage is. And as we move towards that, our marriages come more and more alive as we seek as equal partners to outserve each other. That's where intimacy and love comes from. That's not Thomas's great idea. As Beth will tell you, my great ideas on marriage are very limited. <laughs> this is because the scripture teaches us and we bend and mold our lives to follow this word. This is the leader God sends in Ezra. You have that chance. You have that chance to gather and worship around God's word as we are in a bit of a programmatic break here for the summer. You'll have that chance in the fall through uh, lamplighters or Presbyterian women or men in the word or downtown men's Bible study, stuff that will get started in August and September to gather around the word and just let it change us because God speaks through it. But you have that chance today, this week. We didn't come up with this teaching series because we couldn't think of anything better to do. We came up with the idea of reading the scriptures through the summer because it is how God speaks to us. And so this week, may we engage the teachings of Ezra and Nehemiah as God's exiled people are coming back home to be reminded of who we are at our core, to believe that as we journey this week, God's spirit will speak and shape and bring us to life as well. This is the leader that God calls for his people. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day and this week that you would shape and form us through your word, your living word. And as we gather now at this table for this feast, we pray that you, the living word, would meet us here and that we would encounter you. We ask for this and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.